You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Post Growth Australia podcast, or PGAP for short. I'm Michael Bayliss, proud communications manager for Sustainable Population Australia, or SPA for short. I'm actually delighted that SPA have put their trust in me to host a new podcast series which aims to make sense of this notion of post-growth. So why do so many economists and politicians tell us that growth is good during the age of great acceleration, during a time when the Arctic is practically on fire at time of recording? And why are so many telling us that technology and innovation will save us when it seems that all the great innovations in the past have just seemed to make the problems even worse? If we can agree that infinite growth on a finite planet is an oxymoron, surely there must be valid alternatives to the trajectory that we're currently following. Now, without trying to sound overdramatic here, COVID has given us a peek into the abyss and shown us that we need to break away from the status quo. If we don't, I'm sure that the winds of change will blow us ever deeper into the abyss until finally we get the message or we don't make it as a species. Now, I've just finished rereading the book The End of Growth by Richard Heinberg, a terrific read that is even more relevant today than when it was written a decade ago. Now, I must admit that fully understanding the book requires an understanding of the monetary and credit systems, something that is still quite complex and elusive to me. And this is coming from someone that majored in economics, you know, albeit many moons ago. So plunging headfirst into alternative theories around post-growth economies and societies can be quite the daunting leap for many of us. This is where PGAP comes in. In each episode, I'll interview one or more experts in the field who will give a little taster of what post-growth living means to them and to help us unpack the concepts a little. I will also pay some topical environmental themed music by local artists in each episode. Now for today's episode, I'm going to focus on the steady state economy. This is a global movement that has been gaining much traction over the last few years due to the tireless work of organisations such as the Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, or Cassie if you please. Now Cassie describes steady state thus, an economy of stable or mildly fluctuating size. The term typically refers to a national economy, but it can also be applied to local, regional or global economies. An economy can reach a steady state after a period of growth or after a period of downsizing or degrowth. To be sustainable, a steady state economy may not exceed ecological limits. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty desirable to me. So in this episode, I'm going to be speaking with Martin Tai, the newly appointed director of the Australian Regional Communities Chapter of Cassie. <laughs> Try saying that in one go. I'll also be speaking with Jonathan Miller from Steady State ACT. But before we get ahead of ourselves now, I would like to play you all a little something to get us off the front gates. Last year, I helped make a short animation for SPA titled The Endless Growth Paradigm. It has been one of my most successful projects for SPA, if I don't say so myself, attracting 12,000 video views uh, and promotion through the Post Growth Alliance and better still, vigorous online arguments over Reddit. Now, you know when people argue over your work, over social media, that that's uh, pretty much a milestone. 
I thought the audio is punchy enough without the fancy visuals. So, dear listeners, I present to you the endless growth paradigm. These days, city living feels much more difficult than it used to be. It seems everyone has a town planning issue or gripe. What's yours? With millions of dollars being thrown at road widening and the construction of new railway lines, do you still find that it's harder to get from A to B? Are you shocked by the amount of good houses on your street that are being demolished and replaced with buildings that are lower in standard and out of place? Or all the new suburbs that are being built on land that you once remembered as bush or farmland? If you are one of the lucky ones that are still in the market to buy a new home, are your choices becoming more and more limited? Are you concerned about poor design and safety issues in the new housing that is available? Do you look at the sprawl and wonder if it will ever stop? Do you ask yourself, why do we keep growing like this? With Australia's population growing annually by over 400,000 people, we are adding the equivalent of a new Canberra each year. This rate of population growth is propping up a stagnant economy, even though on a per capita basis, we are individually no better off. Like an addiction, the more reliant we become on population growth, the harder it is to break from it. If we leave the economists in charge, our neighbourhoods will never be dense enough, our cities will never stop sprawling, and we will never catch up with the infrastructure backlog. Despite the size of our island nation, we live around the edges because it's only there that we find the soil and water to sustain us. Government plans to move people to country towns are poorly thought out and create their own problems. If Victoria's main regional towns were to absorb just six years of Melbourne's growth, then Bendigo, Ballarat and Geelong would each double in size. Look at the service and infrastructure problems that that would create. It's neither possible nor desirable. Yet our current population trajectory demands doubling in size again and then again and again. There is a growing belief that never-ending population growth is a necessary means of offsetting an ageing population, yet a majority of our retirees are healthy and live independently. Fueled by their efforts, the volunteer sector is a significant yet unacknowledged partner in our economy. We also have chronic underemployment in Australia. All developed nations have an ageing population. It's a sign of good healthcare and high levels of education. In fact, for any population to stabilise, it is essential that it adjusts to a gradually ageing population as part of the process. If we weren't so fixated on economic growth, we could work on real solutions. Nations need to work cooperatively to solve growing crises such as climate change, biodiversity loss and destruction of nature. Australia must work with our global partners by sharing our knowledge and technology in order to create innovative and resilient low-carbon communities. Part of this approach should include sharing knowledge about family planning and providing universal access to contraception, healthcare and education. Lifting people out of poverty across the world creates political stability and reduces the incentive for large numbers of people to emigrate. In combination with this global approach, Australia must develop an economy that doesn't require endless growth, whether that be in population or per capita consumption. We need to move away from an economic model that requires pouring an endless amount of carbon-intensive concrete into an endless number of new buildings. 
models such as the Genuine Progress Indicator as an alternative to GDP already exist. Our politicians and decision makers need to remove their blindfolds. By taking a global approach to population stability and by creating societies that are not addicted to property development, we can help forge an approach to population that doesn't need to shut the door to migrants, while at the same time wisely conserving the resources we already have and caring for our ancient continent. The system we have created cannot go on indefinitely. Morally, we must not sit back and expect future generations to pick up the pieces. The climate is changing now. We must urgently proceed to new ways of thinking. The clock is ticking. The future is in our hands. I am virtually sitting here with the irrepressible Jonathan Miller. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Michael. You're the first ever victim of post-growth podcast Australia. And hopefully if this goes well, there will be many other victims that follow in your wake. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm trying to bear it manfully. <laughs> You're doing great so far. In, in this age of attention deficiency and information overload, I'm asking all guests to describe themselves in 10 key words or less. So you're not allowed to use uh, irrepressible, but uh, 10 other words. Well, I'm hoping I can use phrases as well as words, <laughs> but the 10 would be my partner, Shay, uh, nature, plant-based diet, sustainability, limits to growth, steady state economy, mindfulness, bushwalking, orienteering and row gaming. Fantastic. They sound uh, 10 very uh, good qualities to have, in my opinion, but I'm slightly biased. Um, and you're obviously into post-growth and steady-state societies and things not getting bigger. Y you know, you must have a little bit of at least one thing that you see in your day-to-day -day life that's getting bigger by the day and you wish that it wouldn't, like the number of cars on the road or the number of invitations to environmental red carpet functions? Is there anything that's getting bigger that you wish wouldn't? Oh, many things. <laughs> but I guess the one that no day to day I notice is just Canberra's expanse growing. So when I came here in the late 80s, it was a lot smaller than this uh, than it is now and what I see is these areas which weren't necessarily pristine bits of bush but which were definitely open space so they were the places that you'd walk uh, that you might run that would provide the backdrop to uh, life in Canberra and whereas before they were green and vegetated now they're often uh, suburbs um, or the rather unattractive bare earth of suburbs about to be built. I was just going to say, it's um, when you look at the maps of Canberra and ACT and you can see the suburbs like pushing up against the New South Wales boundaries. So it's almost like a microcosm of trying to grow within this finite area of, of possible growth. Yeah, well, Canberra's unusual in the sense that it's uh, it's actually... it's it's expanse is already huge it's it's similar to greater london but there are wonderful areas in the middle which are basically green space which is one of the attractions going however to a renewables world and a post-fossil fuel world it certainly creates challenges in terms of urban design and 
uh, certainly public transport's always been a challenge with our low density. And um, seeing Canberra grow so much over the uh, decades, um, would you say that would have been one of the light bulb moments over the course of your life um, that has got to where you are now and that is passionate about the limits of growth for steady state economy? Are there other things? Yeah, I think there are two light bulb moments for me. When I was at university, I studied a normal science degree to start with and I really enjoyed mathematics, but I had no idea what that looked like in terms of work and a vocation. And I was really, really lucky that at university I started to love bushwalking. And in my second year, I was out on a bushwalk in far northeastern Victoria, a really wonderful area just near the source of the Murray. Hear the dingoes crying at night or howling at night. Um, and anyway, there was a, someone with me who was doing a forest science degree. And he was able to tell me what was what the uh, the forest was and why it was there, and I and I suddenly had this light bulb moment that your work could actually relate to your passions, and and I made a decision really soon after that to change my degree, and pretty much the rest of my life has been committed to enjoying and trying to protect the wonderful life forms on this planet. Second light bulb moment for me has been more recently, and that was that my activism and the activism of most conservation groups, Australia and internationally, is only dealing with the symptoms of the problem and not the problem itself. And there are, you can look at what that problem is uh, in a range of different ways, but for me, one of the central parts of defining the problem is our addiction to economic growth nearly so many other things hang off that. Well, it begs the question, Jonathan, and that's why can't we grow infinitely on a finite planet? I mean, I've seen the demographers on ABC News, so haven't you heard of decoupling and substitution and technology and human cleverness and, uh, and stuff? So, uh, so the starting point here is that we're already beyond the capacity of this planet to renew what we harvest every year in terms of renewable, so-called renewable resources, but we're also uh, moving very quickly to, um, to use up re non-renewable resources, not necessarily to their exhaustion, but certainly to the point where they're uneconomic to, to use. So that's the starting point. The second point with all that is that uh, yes, we, there are a range of technologies we can use uh, to decrease our footprint uh, to more efficiently uh, in terms of use of resources and pollution to generate the, the capital items and the commodities we want. But there are diminishing returns with that. Um, if our economic growth is, is continuing to grow exponentially, with no decoupling, you get a pretty much a, a similar exponential growth in the use of physical resources. However, in terms of decoupling and trying to reduce and make more efficient, there, there tend to be diminishing returns. There's only so far you can go, for example, if you want to put a bridge across a ravine, ultimately <laughs> it's still 50 metres or 100 metres wide, you still need stuff 
which to go across that. So, and even with Moore's law, where we've happily been able to um, increase the density of computer chips um, every couple of years, I think we've been able to double it. And increasingly, we're coming butting up against the fact that uh, there are limits because of atomic size. Now, I don't understand quantum computing. Maybe that'll get around that problem. But certainly using that tech, normal technology, <coughs> we're getting to a limit to our capacity to densify the computer chip. That's really interesting. Yeah, and thank you for clarifying. Currently, you're the director of Steady State ACT. Um, so, yeah, tell me more about that. So Steady ACT is a, a vehicle I've set up, but currently um, I use it really for one main goal, and that is to raise awareness wherever I can in Canberra and nationally that we are beyond already the limits to growth. We're already beyond the capacity of our planet to meet our needs and uh, that we're currently using up natural capital, if you like. We're degrading the planet for our annual income, if you like. Um, and that we must move, therefore, to a sustainable economy, an economy which is in balance with the capacities of this planet. So that's, that's really my passion now, is to to raise awareness of the need to live within our, our planetary means. I like the term steady state. There's something about it that sounds quite nice and reassuring. <laughs> like, um, you know, steady state, it's um, nothing's going to be going too up and down too much. So um, I would, yeah, it'd be great to hear from you, like what a day in the life of a steady state society looks to you. Yeah, look, I can't give, um, the reason I can't give a, a particularly crystal clear answer to that is that a range of different societies and different lifestyles could flourish within a steady state economy. So um, the first thing to point out is if we move quickly to a steady state economy, we can avoid the major societal disruptions. Um, what you would expect, I guess, everything being equal that individual material consumption will probably be lower. Uh, there'll be more local production of food um, and, and other, other uh, uh, things that we use in our daily life. Um, I expect that people will have shorter working lives um, for that reason and that we'll probably focus more on levels of social interaction, enjoying being with our partners, with our children, our, our families and our friends uh, and maybe participating more in cultural activities. I remember when I was working in Kakadu many years ago, I was told that the societies there, the Aboriginal societies there, pre-contact, uh, were able to harvest their material needs 15 hours a week. That's a pretty good, imagine having a 15 hour working week. And the rest of their lives, uh, as I understand, they were able to participate in cultural and social activities, which sound like a pretty damn good lifestyle to me. Um, the level of, of, of material consumption will largely depend, well, depend on a range of things, the technologies we use, but also the population we have. The higher the population, the more consumers, therefore the less that any individual 
can cons- sustainably consume to stay within that um, envelope, which is the Earth's capacity to regenerate our waste, but also to 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 reproduce the renewable resources that we harvest. If we have an understanding of the need for a steady state economy, then that will reflect a greater valuing of the planet and the services and the life forms here. I suspect, and, and we see, tend to see this in indigenous societies, and it's something we're pretty askew on currently in our society. And if I think if we were to move to a steady state economy, we would recognise more closely the inextricable links between our livelihood uh, and those of and that of the the health of the planet and the other species on this planet. Yeah, and it's interesting that you um, raise indigenous societies. You know, in Australia, um, many of the First Nations people who reside on the continent uh, were able to live well on the continent for tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of years and since colonization we're pushing a couple of hundred years so yeah i think that's a very good real life example of a form of steady state societies and growth um working so it's probably important to point out that a steady state economy is not totally static it's not going to be groundhog day Uh, every time someone wakes up in the sense that while we need to live within the constraints of what the planet can provide for us, there can still obviously be artistic, cultural evolution and and, and also technological evolution. So that none of that needs to stop. It's just that we need to live within our means. And, And Michael, you mentioned Aboriginal societies. I mean, while I'm not a anthropologist, I'm certainly aware that they were certainly living within um, the physical and biological constraints of the, 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 their, their country um, with extraordinary knowledge, but they were also um, evolving technologically and uh, adapting to the, to the circumstances and the climate change over the period that they, were, they have been in, in their country, which is obviously a very long time. Now, I know that Sustainable Population Australia is backing this podcast, so you did raise population, and I have to ask the inevitable question on population, and that is, is it possible to have a degrowth society with a growing population, and why or why not? Yeah, so it is, is in theory, possible to do that. The, pro- the problem is that one's per capita consumption, everything else being equal, would need to reduce at a greater rate or at the same rate or a greater rate than the population is increasing so theoretically not impossible but you probably wouldn't choose to do it that way and it would certainly make it more difficult and how interesting that people who advocate for population are called eco-fascists but to infinitely reduce per capita consumption in order to mitigate growing population i always thought would have to lead to a form of eco-fascism anyway i mean who's going to want to reduce their per capita consumption infinitely and there's another element of the uh, herman daly's just who who was the the thinker who really, one of the key thinkers of the steady state economy, makes the point that when we're living beyond our means, our consumption now 
is consumption which cannot be had later on. It's and then potentially it's reducing the number of lives that can flourish in, in at a future time. So there's also these elements of what we do now and how it affects the future. And from your perspective, how do we non-eco-fascistly, <laughs> there's a new term, um, address our population? Well, what are some ideas of, of ways we can do it in a nice way? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to actually recognise that overall there is a consumption problem. And the more people there are to live a decent lifestyle, um, the harder that is. Your, your question, Michael, also went to the point of how do we how do we address population? There are many so-called no regrets um, solutions where um, everyone's better off, and part of this relates to the fact that up to one in three children born are not actually planned. Now, they may not necessarily be unwanted, but they're not necessarily planned. So I'm certainly aware that we can provide free contraception. Uh, I understand there was a trial or in Colorado and um, by providing free contraception to uh, teenagers, then there was a marked reduction in the unplanned pregnancies in Colorado. So this is just an example. And uh, this is not, so this is not just a first world, third world thing. In fact, ideally, we would be um, reducing our population, uh, putting more emphasis on re both reducing consumption, but also reducing population in first world countries because each um, reduced number of people, each person fewer uh, in Australia has a far greater impact than say in a third world country. However, um, consistent with Kate Raworth's point, we should be hoping that everyone in the world lives decently. And once we get to the point where there are 9 billion people on the planet, um, or 11, or whatever it might be, then again, we're going to be way beyond the capacity of this planet um, to cater for that. So it is the case that wherever population is growing, um, then that is potentially going to impact on on the capacity of, to, for all of us to live decent lives. And, and I guess the other final part of that is, that is possibly the most tricky part, and that's the redistribution of wealth and resources between third world countries and uh, first world countries and third world countries. Um, so, yeah, I think there are a lot of moving parts there. The first, the first part of the solution is to recognise the problem. Yeah, so look, I'm uh, would love people to uh, go to my website, have a look around. Uh, it's if you put into your browser "steady state ACT," I'm sure it'll come up. the The address is just uh, www.steadystateact or one word dot org. Um, or uh, people can, and there's a form there. People can uh, send me an email if they would like. I'd love to hear from you. Alternatively, my direct email address is director at steadystateact or one word dot org. No AU, AU on the end. Um, yes, yeah, so I certainly uh, would love to hear from people who have 
got similar ideas anywhere in Australia and I guess particularly those in the ACT would be interested in working together on some of the things that that I'm, in, I'm passionate about and I think are necessary too. And can I say how kind that steady state ACT is? So you even published a couple of my articles and <laughs> blogs, which not everyone does. <laughs> oh, well. for, that, for that alone. Um, so I'm enamoured by steady state <laughs> ACT. And if any of the listeners are enamoured, um, want to check out more or say hello, uh, check out the website and email Jonathan. You are listening to the Postgrowth Australia podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Bayliss. So thanks for sticking around. We just interviewed the excellent Jonathan Miller, and before that, we heard the audio excerpt from the animation that Spa did last year called The Endless Growth Paradigm. Now, I need to give a kudos to Jude Pearl, who did the music not only for the intro, but also the animation, and Jane Grady, who narrated the Endless Grove Paradigm animation, which we've just heard. Now, we're just about to interview the equally excellent Martin Tai from Cassie, but before we do, I wanted to play a new single that came out at the start of the year. It was called The End of... History by a music project called Counting Backwards. And uh, Counting Backwards are um, a band that explore environmental and existential themes. So I thought they were good for this kind of, um, this style of podcast. And also just uh, as an aside, that it was a double A side single that raised funds for Extinction Rebellion. So a health warning for those with sensitive is that this song is a little bit roll and rock and a little bit on the heavier side but you know what i like it so too bad so without further ado i give you counting backwards with the end of history leningrad before the peace so many lost to the pursuit of a single dream some pulled through on the leaves that collected on the streets Others fought to eat the ones they found Frozen in their sleep Because they couldn't They didn't have a name
Cause life, life is just a bad segway So I'm sitting here today with the unstoppable Martin Ty. And I say unstoppable, Martin, because you have been hacking away at this for as long as I've known you through various guises. So how are you feeling today, Martin? Well, I'm feeling good. You're, you're right. I have been going for, oh, I, I don't even remember, but it's at least a decade on this stuff, pretty hard. Um, so yeah, you're right. I have been going a long time and I've, I've known you for a long time. So um, we live in an age of sound bites. So I'm asking all interviewees to describe themselves, their passions and their um, and who they are in 10 words or less. So you feel free to use unstoppable again, if you like. Otherwise, uh, uh, 10 words from you, Martin. Um, well, 10 words. I probably only need two words. Um, I'm angry angry at the way the world's going, angry at the things I've seen happening and the people I see in charge. And that makes me determined um, to do something about it. So probably two words are enough, angry and determined. It's uh, two essential qualities for advocates and activists. Uh, so tell me, you've been advocating for steady state and post-growth and and things being better and not bigger. So give us one example of something in your day-to-day -day life that is growing by size or numbers that you really wish wouldn't. Now, I know your Twitter following is growing exponentially, so that's one thing we don't want to slow down, but is there anything else? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, and probably many other people like me experience this, when we drive around, we see growth in the pockets of ecological destruction. And that's what really fuels my anger quite often. You drive around and, and what was bushland um, or perhaps agricultural land is now disappearing under concrete and housing estates. And then you have to put up with people saying, oh, aren't we going ahead? Or aren't we progressing? Or isn't it great to see growth? Um, so to answer your question, I'd say the thing that is growing that, that I don't want to see grow. Uh, there's probably many things. Yeah, I could talk about uh, things like traffic congestion and hospital waiting queues and all sorts of other things, but probably the one that really gets me is, is just constantly seeing our, our natural heritage, cultural heritage um, being destroyed in the name of growth. Um, well, look, there's, there's always fuel being poured on the fire of passion on this, on this issue. But I think probably my first, my real light bulb moment, I, I was only very young, maybe about 12, and I was overseas. My dad got a posting to America uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s. I went to school there during the height of the Vietnam protests and civil rights, and it was all happening around me. Um, I went and saw, a, there was a little film being screened at an environmental centre, and it showed the lives of these ducks living on a pond. And then the message was, it was, a, it was an environmental message, but the story was that this this wetland was being destroyed for a housing estate and a shopping mall, something we're still seeing happening today. 
And it was very emotional because it showed this mother duck with the baby ducklings. And there was a scene right at the end where the ducklings were sitting in the bucket of the bulldozer, staring out at, at what was their home, which was now just bulldozed dirt, about to become a car park for a shopping mall. And as a young person, that kind of resonated with me. Um, you know, ducklings res resonate with everybody, I suppose. But um, just the whole idea that economy and environment are interconnected, probably without me really realising, that's where I probably first really made the connection that that what we call growth and, and what we call human expansion and progress comes with an environmental cost. And I even think back then I understood that one day that cost would come back to bite us because um, we were undermining our foundation. So in terms of light bulb moments probably happened very young and that was that may well have been it. Yeah, it's interesting to hear from people, you, you know, what, what inspired them and it's um... It, it's often a connection with nature and um, seeing that destroyed. And, um, and of course, there are alternatives, aren't there? There's, we don't have to keep doing what we're doing. So can you describe to us, Martin, what the steady state society or a steady state economy looks like? Well, yeah, the, the, the basic principle of a steady state economy is that it operates at a sustainable scale, that is within ecological limits. It understands the limits of growth and it understands that when you exceed those limits, um, the negative externalities exceed the benefits. Those externalities under the current system are not being accounted for, they're being ignored. Um, you hear people refer to uh, privatising the profits, socialising and environmentalising the costs. Um, so under a steady state economy, things are looked at more objectively. Um, we would use a, a, a dash, what's being referred to as, as a dashboard of indicators across the ecological, social and economic spectrum. Um, it, it, there's no suggestion that a steady state economy is a, a weaker economy. In fact, it's a far stronger economy. So that's the kind of principle of a steady state economy. It's about more diverse, more sustainable, more resilient economy. Um, within which we can pursue a whole range of more meaningful objectives other than just making more money in a bigger economy. Um, so a steady state economy is a very exciting state to aim for. Um, difficult thing obviously is getting people out of the growth mindset because the vested interests are very good at manipulating public opinion. So that's my challenge is to try to make people see that there is another way, a better way. It's interesting, when I first came across the term steady state, there was something kind of reassuring and even keel about the sound of the word. But certainly when I read your booklet, Dynamic Balance, um, you know, it opened up to me the possibilities of um, in, indeed different types of peaks and troughs that a steady state economy could bring. Uh, I recall in that you uh, gave examples of a couple of news broadcasts, which brought to me an idea of what a day-to-day -day life might be in a steady state economy. So I'm interested if you could tell me um, what would the changes in one's day-to-day -day life would be? Uh, I, I imagine already that I wouldn't be working as many hours, but flying to Europe every year might be a bit of a write-off. So what would be the changes 
Yeah, well, obviously flying all around the world on overseas holidays, you know, like if you were to factor in properly the environmental cost of that and make people pay for it, um, there'd be far less of it happening. Um, basically, it happens now because we're willing to steal planetary health from our children. So we're holidaying on and they're going to pay the cost. So, yeah, look, flying, there'd be, be obviously be less of that. Um, as far as life under a steady state economy goes, there'd be a whole new set of goals. We, we would no longer be trying to keep up with the Joneses and judge our status by how big a house we've got, how many cars we've got and how many goods we've got. So all of that would change. Um, but to me, probably the biggest thing that would change would be what I call future stress. And so stress would melt away. At the moment, we see stress around climate change, obviously the big one, but also economic instability, um, social divides. We're seeing increasing racial tensions and religious tensions and, and all sorts of things like that. These are all brought about by the pressures of modern society, chasing scarce resources and trying to grow beyond limits. You can't give everyone a job. So everyday life in a steady state economy would be about valuing things differently, different things, uh, family time, perhaps you know, working shorter hours may well be an objective. Um, essentially, restoring ecosystems, that would be a big one to me. It would be, instead of me driving around, watching trees coming down everywhere, I'd be driving around looking at new ecosystems being established and, and wildlife returning and, and imagining that my children and, and my grandchildren will be able to go out into the bush and see wild animals and see beautiful places. So look, to me, it's just a crazy no-brainer that life under a steady state economy is going to be so much better than than where we're at now and, and with all the future stress that people are experiencing around disease, pardon me, um, water scarcity, everywhere you look, there's pressures and they would all they would all start to ease as we transition to a steady state economy. Any challenges or teething issues in the transition? Uh, I always wonder, um, you know, would I be able to go to shops and buy a range of foods or or would I have to, you know, eat more locally and, and things like that? And just, um, yeah, any any teething issues in, in one's day-to-day -day life that come to mind? Um, look, one of my sayings is that with change comes opportunity. I think it was in the book you referred to, um, for those that are creative and, and innovative. So, yeah, there'll be challenges, but... To put it in context, compare the challenges of moving to a steady state economy and moving back within ecological limits to the challenges of pursuing endless growth. They've become impossible. Um, so if people are afraid of the challenges around change, uh, transitioning to a steady state economy, they need to put it, frame it in the context of the challenges of remaining within the current paradigm, because they've become, those challenges are now impossible and we're just at best buying a bit of time. So I guess the biggest challenge steady state economy, the steady state economy will face is fixing up the mess created by the growth economy, um, tackling climate change, um, reversing the extinction crisis, cleaning up the oceans. Um, so they're not necessarily specific to the steady state economy, they're, they're problems that have been inherited. Um, but certainly the steady state economy is in a far better position to tackle those problems than the growth economy.
And speaking of challenges, you've taken on a new role and position with the Centre for a Steady State Economy, or CASI for short. Uh, would you like to run me through what your role entails, what CASI entails, and any specific campaigns that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, I'm um, I, I rather long-winded title, and I've yet to make up a suitable acronym, is um, Director, Australian Regional Communities Chapter of the Centre for the Advancement of a Steady State Economy. Uh, it sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> Do that all in one breath. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it sounds impressive when I tell my friends out in the surf. I say, guess what I am now? And by the time I get halfway through it, they've lost interest. Um, but look, it's an interesting position. And um, basically, Cassie is advocating for the steady state economy Um similar to the donut economy some people may be familiar with. Um, so the steady state economy, as previously mentioned, is, is a new economic system primarily based around remaining within at a sustainable scale within economic within ecological limits. So my role is a pretty free and freewheeling one. Um, I, I promote that through my Twitter campaign. Uh, I've got nearly five and a half thousand followers there. Um, I, I've also getting out and talking to different organisations. And, and I'm, I'm pretty happy to report that the new Liberal Party, um, they're a new minor party, they've actually come out and endorsed the steady state economy. Their party leader has signed the petition. So that's really big plus for me that I've been out there talking to people and they're very receptive to the idea. They understand the limits to growth. And we now have a political party that's actually endorsing our economic plan and taking it to the electorate. Um, we've also got a, our Nicaraguan chapter director studying at the ANU here in Australia, and I've recently started working with her to translate some of my tweets into Spanish so we can hit, some, hit a new market, and that's working quite well. Um, I've, I've been helping a guy called Adrian Hayes, who's a patron of uh, Population Matters, actually, in UK. Um, he, he's writing a book, and um, him and I have worked a little bit on the working the steady state economy message into his book. Um, just lots of interesting little things. Um, you know, I'm really enjoying the role and I'm doing something that I believe in. So it's it's really good for me. I know particularly that you're having a lot of success on Twitter and are building a following. So I just wondered if you had any words of wisdom about the power of social media. Yeah, indeed. I. I it's really odd that someone of my age seems to have taken to Twitter. Uh, when it was first suggested to me, it, it looked so complicated and I thought, how on earth am I going to do that? But I guess my brain seems to work in short bites a fair bit. I, I could never write a long-winded academic paper. Um, so Twitter suits me and, and, and it's very, very powerful um, because um, it, it just, I don't know, I, I don't use other social media. I've tried a bit of Facebook and it hasn't had a lot of success for me, but Twitter is something that's very active. Um, you can have immediate conversations with people all around the country and all around the world. Um, so I would say social media is an extremely powerful tool. And if you can direct those people, uh, I, I use a, a strategy of A, making them aware of the issues around the current economic system, B, promoting a new economic system, and then C, trying to get them to take some sort of action, primarily signing our petition because um, we need to demonstrate public support for the steady state economy. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a very powerful thing. Uh, I've also been on Twitter 
recently and there have been plenty of experts on Twitter telling me of decoupling and substitution and technology and human cleverness if only we grow a little bit more. So are they wrong, Martin? Why can't we grow infinitely in a finite planet if they're so clever? Um, look, I've heard of that. Uh, I've also heard of the Tooth Fairy and Father Christmas. Um, so, look, where's the evidence for it? Are we seeing decoupling? Are we seeing our ecosystems being restored while economies are growing? Human cleverness? Um, look, we are clever, but are we being harnessed in the right direction? I don't think so. Um, so, look, you, to me, there's a, there's a tool that's used by advocates of the status quo, and that is a future promise that, that things are about to get better if only we grow some more. Um, that way they sustain faith in the system. We, we will decouple, we will be able to grow a, a green economy. We will be able to grow while restoring our ecosystems. It's not gonna happen. We cannot have this form of growth measured by GDP and hope to restore our ecosystems. It's, it's basically a lie. It's a false promise designed to keep you attached to the current system. And it's interesting how the experts tell us this will happen in the future and no one really questions them of why hasn't it happened now? You know, why haven't we innovated our way of our problems now? It's um, putting faith in the future is always pretty fraught. Um, so speaking of the future, we're expecting up to 11 billion people in the world by the end of the century. Now, I'm employed by SPA, and SPA is uh, Sustainable Population Australia, is backing his podcast. So, you know, do need to ask a question on population. Is it possible to have a degrowth society with a growing population? Firstly, about that, I, I think it's really important that we are never bullied off the subject of population by greedy vested interests or the ill-informed. Um, Population is a critical issue. Um, we, we, we need to empower women and couples to take control of their fertility. Um, we need to use education. We need to use a range of ethical tools. We need, we need to adopt a new economic paradigm that doesn't rely on human fodder to drive growth, to drive consumption. Um, so population is critical. And no, we can't grow our population by another 3 billion over the course of this century and expect uh, expect that we're going to ha have a sustainable society, we're gonna have healthy ecosystems. I mean, there's so many things wrong with it. It's a flawed economic plan. There's gonna be so much unemployment. Um, there's gonna be so much poverty. Um, what we need to do is make sure that everybody we have now is looked after before we even contemplate more growing our population. It's just a tool being used to grow GDP and it's highly unethical. It's unethical. People say it's unethical to discuss population. It's, it's unethical not to discuss it because it's causing suffering both for people and for our planet. So the other thing of obviously you hear, which I'll quickly touch on is that it's just consumption. Well, no, it's not just consumption. Uh, it's both. It, there is overconsumption that needs to be cut back, but that's just half of the equation, maybe not even half, but that's part of the equation. But population is the other part. And you only need to go to Africa, Southeast Asia, places like this, which I have done, 
and to see the suffering that's being caused um, both for the, the the land and for the people. Yeah, why not talk about it? Don't be pushed off it because some people who who are poorly informed want to call you a name for talking about it. Just keep pushing the 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 ethical message around population. Ignore the the right-wing neoliberal economists that want more population to drive more consumption, to drive GDP, and ignore the other side that has just been poorly informed. So Martin, thank you so much for joining with us and letting us know what you've been up to lately in this very important movement. And um, good luck with your new appointment with Cassie. Um, I'm sure you'll help uh, get that organisation from strength to strength. Uh, if listeners do feel enamoured with you and with Cassie and and want to get involved more, uh, where can they go and what can they do? Yeah, well, they can follow both myself and Cassie on Twitter and, and participate in some of the conversations there. They can go to the CassieSteadyState.org website um, all the information's there, lots of useful information to help you discuss the steady state economy with your friends and, and at parties and so on. Um, you can all, I do have a Facebook page, you can go on that. It's not particularly active, but by all means have a go. Um, but I guess that the biggest thing I would ask of anybody looking at this is it's so important to demonstrate public support for this transition. Um, so signing our petition on the website is, is really valuable to us. So if nothing else, it takes two minutes. If people could jump on our website and sign our petition, uh, that would be greatly appreciated because at the end of the day, transitioning our economy away from growth to the steady state is by far the biggest issue we face on this planet today. Um, nothing will be solved without, without that transition. So. Hopefully people will get behind it and support it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of the first episode of the Post Growth Australia podcast. Thank you so much for sticking around. I think we're going to end this in just under an hour. Now, going down the track, the episodes won't be as long as this. Um, I just had a lot of interviewees willing to be interviewed. Uh, so I was so lucky, but I just wanted to get them all in. Um, and also next episode will be the World Population Day special on July the 11th. And so that will also be a little bit longer because I want to interview about four people from different areas of the world or doing their own niche things about populations. So essential episode for Essential Day, stick around for that. Now, before we go, um, I want to posit a question to the listeners. And that question is... Um, what do you find in your life that you like just the way it is and you're very happy that it's not bigger? Is that the size of your house or the size of your car or the size of your yard or the size of your community if you're lucky enough not to be living in Australian capital city um, so please feel free to email at media at population .org.au to let us know um, what your thoughts are. Something that's small that you're glad is small because that's 
what we like with post-growth. So thank you so much for sticking around. I'm Michael Bayless, Communications Manager for SPA. This has been great. See you later. Bye.